Well, good morning. It's sweet to be together as we kick off our new sermon series through the book of Exodus. And we will kick that off by looking back at the book of Genesis. So imagine God had made you the leader of over two million refugees who had come out of Egyptian slavery. You're on the brink of entering the land that God had promised to your forefathers. The people that you are leading there have just gotten word that you're not going into a land that is empty, but it's occupied. And it's occupied by people who are described as giants. They're idol worshipers. They're immoral beyond description. And they must be conquered before you can take possession of the land. Also think that you are aware that your death is soon coming. And thus, you yourself will not be able to lead this people into the conquest of that land. And so my question to you is, if you're in that situation, how do you instill confidence in the million, the two million people that you're leading? How do you encourage them to trust in the promises of God? How do you encourage them to move forward in obedience? How do you encourage them to remain morally and spiritually pure along the way? Well, as you think about what approach you would take, let me share with you the approach that Moses took. Moses' approach was to write the first five books of the Bible. The first five books, also known as the Pentateuch, uh, Pentafive, uh, the other word translated as scrolls, so five scrolls, five books, the first five books of the Bible. Moses was the one that God had appointed to lead his people, Israel, out of slavery in Egypt. For 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness, oftentimes grumbling and even threatening to mutiny and return back to the land of slavery, Egypt. And finally, they're on the verge of entering this land that God had promised. And because Moses had been disobedient in striking a rock, which we will read about, God told him that he could not enter the land. In fact, except for Joshua, who was Moses' successor, and Caleb, the whole adult generation who had been exiled from Egypt would die in the wilderness. And before he died, Moses had this overwhelming task of instilling this new generation a vision, a grand vision that would elicit hope and confidence and trust. And he chose to instill that grand vision by writing the first five books of the Bible to keep their focus on who God was and what God had done. The act of remembering God's past faithfulness would instill courage to trust Him in future uncertainty. And so this morning, we're standing on the brink of a sermon series through this book that will take us through most of 2023. There's much that happens in the book of Exodus. There's the slavery in Egypt. There are plagues. There's the parting of the Red Sea. There's the giving of the Ten Commandments. There's the crafting of the idol, the golden calf. There's the wandering in the wilderness. There's the building of the tabernacle. I'm helped by what one commentator said. He said, Exodus isn't just some journalistic, dispassionate, objective account of events telling us history about what happened. To be clear, it is an objective account of events telling us historically what happened, but it's more than that. Exodus was written primarily to teach us what God is like and how we live with the knowledge of God. 
To put another way, this book, the book of Exodus, like all of the Bible, is an argument to God's people that God is worthy of our worship. Moses will seek to convince you week in and week out that God is worthy of your worship. The big thing, the theme that we're going to come back to again and again this year is that Exodus is really the fulfillment of God's promise that he would make Abram's descendants a great nation. God's work of creating a people in Genesis leads to God's work of preserving a people in Exodus. The two go together. The desire that God had in Genesis at the beginning of creation, of seeing the earth filled with his glory, it continues in Exodus. And God desires to be known through a people among all nations, that his glory would be made known. What begins in Genesis continues in Exodus. Pastor Bobby Jameson summarized Exodus this way. Exodus proclaims God's great act of delivering his people from bondage from gifting, uh, gifting them the law and inviting them into intimate fellowship with him. Exodus is the account of rescue, commission, and communion. Egypt, Mount Sinai, the tabernacle. J. Alec Matir would put it this way. Exodus opens with a slave people building cities for Pharaoh in Egypt. It closes with the same people, now free, building a dwelling place for their God. This book covers such a significant time in the history of God's people. And as we, over the next several months, come to better understand their plight, come to better understand their struggles, and come to better understand God himself, we will be equipped to better understand our plight and our struggles and God himself. And so for us to have a right understanding about the message and the purpose of Exodus, we must have a right understanding about the message and the purpose of Genesis, really of those first five books. And if I could put the theme of those first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the beginning of the scriptures, the theme of the Pentateuch is this, God's covenant-keeping loyalty to his covenant-breaking people. God's covenant-keeping loyalty to his covenant-breaking people. And so it'd be helpful for us not to just view Exodus as this book that stands alone by itself. No, rather, it would be helpful for us to understand Exodus as a second chapter of a book that began with chapter 1, Genesis. And as Alan Ross has said, the work of God in Exodus demonstrates the faithfulness of God to his word in Genesis. The work of God in Exodus demonstrates his faithfulness to the word of God in Genesis. And so Exodus, we'll see next week, opens with a people. And the question is, who are this? I mean, who, who are they? And they're in Egypt. And the question is, how did they get there? And they have a relationship with God. How did that come about? And so as you might imagine, it is not our practice to preach 50 chapters in one sermon. And that's what's on tap for today. And so I'm in need of much grace in preaching this. You're in need of much grace in receiving this. And so let's pray to the gracious God who gives us what we need. Our holy God, we confess as we seek to wrap our minds around your truth and really to wrap our minds around who you are, we can't fully know an infinite God. But praise be to that infinite God. Praise be to you, O Lord, that you have revealed yourself truly in and through your word. And so though we can't know everything exhaustively, 
that there is to know about you, we can know everything that you've revealed truly about you. And so would you help us rightly, truly know and understand and behold and worship you. And when we consider who you are, would you just keep in perspective, help us keep in perspective who we are compared to you. God, preserve us from exalting ourselves. You alone are great and worthy to be praised. And so as we open this book, we ask that you would help us find ourselves humbled appropriately before you, because of you. We want to know you as you have revealed yourself to us. And so may we know who you are. And may we be convinced of who we need. And so help us this morning, we pray, in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open them to Genesis chapter 1. I would also just encourage you, you will be flipping a lot this morning, or you can follow along on the screens. And it's fitting that we begin here in Genesis. In understanding Exodus, it's, it's fitting that we begin in the beginning. The origins of all of this. Uh, the origins of all of this except for God. Most scholars are going to divide Genesis along really two lines. The first line is chapters 1 through 11 that would cover the early history of the earth. And then the second line would be chapters 12 through 50, covering the history of the patriarchs, the founding fathers of the people of Israel. The first, chapters 1 through 11, covers somewhere around 2,000 years, the, the back half the last 38 chapters covering less than 300 years. As commentator John Walton put it, Genesis 1 through 11 establishes the need for a covenant God would make with humanity. And Genesis 12 through 50 is the formation of that covenant. So that's really what we see. These first 11 chapters, Moses just writing about the need for God to enter into a unilateral covenant with a people because that people had completely ruined God's good design and creation. And in the back half, chapters 12 through 50, how is it that God goes about forming that people, establishing that covenant? And we begin to pick up on this theme that God is ruthlessly faithful to his promises. Another breakdown of the book of Genesis uh, we could have looked at is through the genealogies and the stories that accompany this phrase that's repeated 10 times in Genesis. This phrase of according to the generation of, or this is the account of, the family lineage of. That phrase occurs 10 times throughout Genesis, five times in chapters 1 through 11, and then five times in 12 through 50. This morning, we will consider really those two divisions as our two sermon points. The divisions of the need for a covenant. And the second division of the formation of a covenant. And so that's where we'll begin this morning. The need for a covenant. God made a covenant with man. With specifically one man. And the covenant, in, in part, was that God would be this man's God, and in God being this man's God, this man would then become a people. And God made that covenant because of something that was lost at the very beginning. It would be helpful for us to understand, when, when we talk of covenants in the Bible, that's different merely than like a contract. A contract that would say, Okay, these are the terms. I do my part. You do your part. If you break your part, the contract is null and void. Clearly, there are some covenants in the Bible where we find there are responsibilities on both parts. And if one of those uh, does not settle up, 
adhere to the particulars of the contract, then the contract is, or the covenant is, uh, is voided out. But the covenants involving God, the covenants that God enters into, they are different than a contract. The covenants are, are, are bound by stipulations, not of if you do, then I will do. God's covenants are bound by the stipulations of I will do because of who I am. And I will do regardless of what it is that you do. It doesn't mean that there aren't consequences to that, but it does mean that the covenant continues to hold, not because it's on the basis of performance, because it's on the basis of God's character. And so when we think about covenant, we, we really, at the most basic level, a covenant is this oath-bound relationship between two or more parties. And after the fall, the covenants that God enters into with man really are bound to his own word, to his own character. He is keeping his own promises. And so why in the world would God have to make a covenant with a people? Whenever he created a people for a good purpose, would you remember how everything begins? Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface, the chaos of the waters. And that's how everything opens. The origins of everything but God begin here in this picture at the beginning of Genesis. God speaking, God first hovering over and being there, God existing in the darkness and speaking and then creating. And again, we don't have time to unpack all of this, but just don't miss the power of his word at his voice. Things are created out of nothing. And so the Bible opens up and we're not debating as to whether or not there is a God. No, we're brought face to face with this eternal God who has always been. And the rest of Genesis 1 just begins to unpack the significance of his creation. And it does so by focusing really on two aspects, the land and people. People being the crown of his creation. And what we see God do in that first week, land and people, that theme is just going to carry all throughout the Bible. Dominion and dynasty, land and lineage, place and people. And the question is, why in the world would God create? It wasn't because he was lacking in something. So why does God create? And then we're given the answer in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Then God said, as he creates the crown of his creation, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so God has created, he stamped his image upon this creation. And in verse 28, God blessed them. Again, another theme that will run massive throughout the first five books of the Bible. The blessing of God. Oh, what a good thing to receive the blessing of God. And what a woeful thing to be cursed by God. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Why in the world does God begin and create a, a place and a people, a land and a lineage? Why does he do this? So that the land would be covered with the crown of his creation implying that those who are bearing the image of God in a unique way, those who are worshiping the God whom they were created by and created for so that they would fill the earth. And as they filled the earth, his glory and his renown would be lifted and exalted high in a way that, that isn't merely captured by the majesty of the mountains. He wanted a people who would love him and who would enjoy him and who would live for him. And he wanted them over 
In, in, in all of the earth, all things were created by God and for God. And there's a place for that. And there's a people to walk in intimacy with their God. And then in Genesis chapter 2, what do we find? We find more detail about the gift of gender, about the gift of work, and about the gift of marriage. And all the foundation for all of those things. Humanity, gender, marriage, work. They they find their foundations here in Genesis 1 and 2. And God's verdict over it all is that it's very good. It's very good. And so perhaps you're here and you're thinking about the sermon series that's awaiting and you're just going, Man, I don't even, I'm not even convinced that God can move in the circumstances that I'm facing. Moses wants to remind you again and again that this is not, the God of the Christian faith is not kind of like you, just a little bit stronger. Kind of like you, but just a little bit nicer. Kind of like you, but just a little bit more gracious. He's completely other than you. And we're invited to say, God, you, O Lord, are the one in whom I place my trust. And it's into that perfection, all of the very goodness of that creation, that humanity lost paradise. And that's what Genesis 3 reminds us of. Particularly Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. That would be a direct violation of what God had said in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And just like that, what seemed to be a little decision about a piece of fruit, because of believing a lie from this serpent, really renders everything marred. It sends humanity into this spiral of sinfulness and wickedness. Adam and Eve rebel against God. They, he, they ignore his commands. They seek to live life as they thought was best. They eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Their rebellion then brings the curse of sin into the world. And as we'll read in the New Testament, anytime sin comes into the world, it's always accompanied by death. And so this thing that was very good, that was not intended to look like Genesis 3, is beginning to morph and take take an image running its course on its own. And because God is holy and good and just, and because he's the one who both created all things and to whom all created things will be, give an account. Because he's that kind of God, he must punish that which is completely contrary to his character. Not just contrary to his character, but that's an attack on his character. And so he must punish sinners, those who willfully do the opposite of what he has said to do. Those who willfully don't do what he has told them to do. And so that's what he does. He brings punishment in Genesis chapter 3, 14 through 19. And if you read Genesis 3, 14 through 19, what you'll begin to realize is where there was once blessing, now there's curse. There was once be fruitful and multiply, and while that's still possible, now childbirth is marked by pain. Where there was once work on earth that was meant to help us worship and obey. Now it's still there, but it's marked with thorns and thistles and sweat. And where man would come from the dust because of sin, and sin always bringing with it death, man will return to the dust. 
And this sin, this first sin at the beginning of it all, it was passed down. That's what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. This sin has been passed down to everyone who is born of Adam's seed, of Adam's lineage. Which again, makes all the difference in the world when we begin to think. Jesus doesn't, doesn't have an earthly seed lineage that he's coming from. He's different. Technically, an avalanche occurs when a growing mass of snow and increasing speed of descent sweeps over and around and through everything in its path. And that's exactly what Adam's sin did. And you just begin to read Genesis 3, Genesis 4, Genesis 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. You just, you read these first 11 chapters and what you realize is what seemed to begin with such a small decision about whether or not to eat fruit then spirals. It, it, it amasses into this avalanche of destruction. Cain and Abel, Genesis 4. Lamech. Genesis 4, 19 and 21, the, the men of renown, the sons of God, beginning of Genesis chapter 6, it all leads to this sobering declaration in Genesis chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their, own, uh, their way upon the earth. And then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. And so how in the world, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, paradise, Genesis 3, sin, Genesis 6, we're three chapters in. And it's this sobering declaration that everywhere God looks, wickedness, evil, People doing what is right in their own eyes. And yet, in an act of mercy, Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Blameless in his time, Noah walked with God. And we begin to think, uh, maybe this is the hope. In obedience to God, Noah builds an ark. He and his family were saved from God's flood. His wrath against sin, it's poured out in a flood as a punishment for the sin that covered the earth. And yet after the flood, what do we find? We find Noah sinning. And it becomes evident that while the flood can cleanse the earth, it doesn't cleanse the human heart. You just continue to follow this brokenness and then it kind of Climaxes yet again in Genesis chapter 11. We see this further blatant defiance of God's purpose for creating a place and a people. God created a place and a people so that that place would be known and that people would be welcomed in that place as being a place in which we exist for God. In Genesis chapter 11, what do we find? We find a place and we find a people. And what do they do? They seek to build a tower so that everyone around them would know their name. And we're going, how are we here again? God will not share his glory with another. And so in judgment, he made a promise to Noah that he wouldn't flood the earth in the, in the way that he did. And so in judgment, God scatters this people over the face of the earth and gives them different languages. And so we're 11 chapters into this book about the beginning of it all, except for God, and we're convinced. And Moses is writing so that we would be convinced that apart from the blessing of God, mankind's plight is hopeless. It's hopeless. Many generations come and go, and there's one common refrain of humanity. They continue to live in their sin. And, and again, this isn't merely 
thousands of years removed. I mean, you were born into this lineage. You were born into this kind of nature. This is the hopeless situation that all of us were born into. Praise be to God. There was redemption for some of us, but it, it may be the hopeless situation that you're still in this morning. I just want you to know, in great kindness and mercy, this has been recorded that you would know God and you would know His ways and you would know His character and you would know His heart and you would begin to put those things together and see that there is a hope for you that exists outside of yourself to be made right with this God who created you to whom you will be accountable to. And in that common refrain of continuing to sin and turning in upon themselves, we hit Genesis chapter 12. And Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, records promises that bring to mind potential repair for this hopeless situation. And that brings us to point number two. Point number two, the formation of God's covenant with his people. The formation of God's covenant with his people. And this is from chapters 12 to 50. So just listen to what we hear in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed." You say, okay, who is Abram? What did Abram do in order to deserve this? And you go back up and you read at the end of chapters 11 and you realize Abram did nothing to deserve this. In fact, he's a pagan guy, not even worshiping the God who calls him. And, it's, and you begin to go, why? Why then would God call him? And that's been the question that every Christian would ask throughout the halls of history. Why in the world would God place his affection upon me? And the reason why? It's the basis for every covenant that God makes with his people. It's not owing to the people. It's not owing to Abram. It's not owing to you or to me. It's owing to God. And then the passage that we heard read at the beginning, Acts, uh, Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. And so Gordon, Gordon Wenham would say Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and Genesis 15, 1 through 7 offers a blessing that would counter the curses of the fall. And so with the promise that God makes to this man, Abram, in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and Genesis 15, 1 through 7, and then he enacts that covenant in Genesis 17, those promises offer a blessing that would be a counter to the things that are lost in the fall. I mean, just think about the promises that God had made at creation. He promised, he promised land, he promised uh, a, a people, uh, the presence of God, and even being, being a blessing to the nations. Man was told to be fruitful and to multiply. And God's promise to this man is that at least one nation will. Man was told to subdue the earth. And from Abram would come kings and princes who would rule. God created Adam in a garden, enjoying his presence. Abraham likewise was promised the land whereby he could have intimate relationship with his God. And the covenant that God makes with Abraham wouldn't just benefit Abraham and his descendants, but all the nations of the earth. And so really, those early chapters, Genesis 1 through 11, set the stage for 12 through 50. Because everywhere that man failed in their sin, God would then uphold his word and his promise. And he would do it through a particular person that would become a people that were meant to put the heart and the character of God on display for all 
the nations. Genesis chapter 12, God calls Noah's descendant, Abram, to leave his family and journey to the land of Canaan. And what did God promise Abram here in Genesis 12? He would give him many descendants and that he would bless all the nations of the world through him. And here's the thing. Abram believed this promise. He believed. Abram is old. He's childless. And God considers him to be righteous. God would then change his name from Abram to Abraham. Abraham has a son named Isaac. And so imagine the joy of this couple. She's 90, he's 100, holding this baby and going, we believed that he would make good on his promise and against literally what seems to be every human odd he has delivered. He's made good on the promise. And imagine how that joy gave way just a few years later when that same God who made a promise came through on the promise and then asked Abraham to put that child on the altar. As an offering to the Lord, Genesis chapter 22. And unfathomable to me that Abraham just says, okay, I'll do it. But then I walk back and I just go, they were barren. There was no human prospect of them having a child. And God, God was faithful. So why not trust the God who asks you to do anything if he's the God who has shown himself to be able to do everything? And that's what happens. Abraham passes the test. He passes the test. He seeks, he lays down his son on the altar. And Hebrews eleven nineteen helps us understand why. It says that he, Abraham, considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. So Abraham... Believing this God can do anything says if God is asking me to sacrifice my son, I'm going to do it because I believe that God can raise him back up from the dead. God then, Genesis chapter 26, verse 24, a few years later, makes a promise to Isaac. As Isaac has grown up. The Lord appeared to him in the same night and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. And so Isaac, do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and I will multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant, Abraham. And so the same promise and the faithfulness of God that established and began to preserve a man and a family continues to his son, Isaac. And so Isaac would dwell in the land. And he would have two twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob would grow up. He would trick Esau into giving away his blessing and his birthright. Esau's not happy about it, and so he's on the run. Jacob leaves town to live with his uncle. Jacob then gets married, has 13 children. He lives with his uncle for 20 years before God calls him back to the land. And as Jacob is returning back to the land, the land of Abraham and the land of Isaac, God then changes his name in Genesis 35, 9 through 12. And he says, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And do you know what God said to him? To instill confidence in him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from you. The land which I give you, dominion, dynasty, land, lineage, place, people, it doesn't go away. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I'm giving to you, and I will give the land to your descendants after you. 
and one of Jacob's sons. He has 12 sons and one daughter. One of his sons, who's his favorite, is named Joseph. And Joseph's brothers don't like that he's dad's favorite, and so they come up with a plan to sell him off into slavery. And so Joseph becomes a prisoner in Egypt. And you begin to go, okay, wait a minute. I think this is where Exodus begins, and it does. So Joseph is a prisoner in Egypt. He's given this God-given ability to interpret dreams, and that becomes valuable to, to Pharaoh. And so Joseph is released from prison, and he's made second in command of all of Egypt. And Jacob, uh, Joseph then warns Pharaoh of a terrible famine that's coming, and he begins to stockpile food for the coming years. And here's the thing. God's grace and mercy and blessing are, are upon Joseph. Joseph's predictions are correct. The famine does come. The famine reaches Canaan. Canaan, the land that God had promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And all of the, that lineage of people, that people... They're living in Canaan, and there's no food in Canaan. So where do they go? The only place to go to find hope. They travel to Egypt to buy food. It's there in, in a dramatic scene where they realize who Joseph is and who the brothers are, and then they begin to say, we will die unless you help us. And Joseph, Joseph helps them. The brothers reconcile. And you say, how in the world do they reconcile? They reconcile because Joseph understands that there's a hand at play. This hidden hand that was orchestrating all of this. It, it wasn't merely the spiteful hands of the brothers that made this happen. It was the sovereign hand of God who was over it all. That's why he will say in Genesis 50, 20, to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present reserve, result, what? To preserve many people alive, in particular, God's people. God's people would be preserved through the orchestration using the wicked intent of these brothers to bring about good to preserve his people. The book of Genesis ends with the death of Joseph. And Joseph's last prediction is that God will bring the children of Israel back to the promised land. They're in Egypt. They have to live in Egypt. And so Joseph makes this promise. God, uh, this prediction, God will bring the children of Israel back to Canaan. And in Exodus chapter 1, we begin to see God fulfilling this all throughout the book of Exodus. In spite of the great sinfulness, in spite of the great evil, the brokenness in this world, God is keeping his promises. He's accomplishing his purposes and he is establishing his people. And so think about it. How do we see God provide for humanity to ensure that God's plan for this people isn't thwarted? I mean, just consider Joseph. God worked good and saving purposes through Joseph, this beloved son of the father who was mistreated by his brothers, the one who lived righteously in this sinful world, who suffered under the hand of sinners. From humility, he was exalted to this high place. He was able to nourish and save all who would come to him. I mean, that sounds, that sounds crazy familiar to Jesus. And Genesis gives us many ways in which the Lord provides for his people. He gives them an ark to escape the judgment of waters. He, gives them, uh, uh, he provides a lamb in the thicket. But most clearly, his provision is seen in Genesis 3.15. Back in this curse that he does at the beginning, because of sin, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to the serpent between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. There is the promise of one who will come to crush the serpent. And in Genesis 3, chapter 21, what do we find? We find that their sin, Adam and Eve's sin, leads to God <coughs> making a covering for their guilt and their shame. 
Genesis 3.15, the devil struck the heel of the promised one by nailing his heel to the cross. But Jesus Christ, the promised one, would crush the head of Satan by shedding his blood as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people. And then he rose from the dead, victorious over this enemy, bringing salvation and cleansing from sin and restoration to the presence of God so that a people who were once not his people could be his people and they could dwell with him forever. God provides a way for his people to accomplish his purposes. And aside from his provision of this promise and a covering for his people, he provides faith. If you just were to read Hebrews chapter 11, what you would find, it was faith. It was faith that when God said something, he was going to do something. Noah's righteousness was credited to him by faith, Hebrews eleven seven. We know Abraham's righteousness was credited to him as faith. And so this is the storyline of each of us in here this morning. Some of us on different sides of that faith, and yet all of us having been created to be in relationship with this kind of covenant-keeping God. And every one of us has devastated what we, uh, has, has been devastated and continue to devastate that relationship by our sin, both the sin, that, the, the sin nature that we inherited as well as through our God-rebelling ways. And we stand today from a different perspective than the people of Genesis and Exodus. They stood looking forward to this one who would come. We stand looking back. And the question is, do you believe, do you accept that the work of Jesus is enough to cover your sin and give you right standing before God? Do you accept that or do you reject that? Do you accept his sinless life, his death on the cross in the place of any who would turn from their sin and trust in him and his bodily resurrection three days later? Do you accept that that is the work that all other works were pointing to? That that is the ultimate way in which God will address our greatest need? That that is, that is that's the new covenant. So God has always established a covenant to, to interact and be in relationship with his people. And if, we, if you have any desire to be in relationship with God, that doesn't come by, I show up on Sunday. I do good things every now and then. It comes by entering into this new covenant, a covenant not on the basis of what I do, but on the basis of what Jesus has done. And the only way to lay hold of that is through faith, turning from my sin and laying a hold of that work through faith. And the Bible says that any who receive that message, and just be clear, that message is such a, an affront to modern man and woman who think that they can get there on their own. And the Bible says, turn from your sin, trust in him. And you, you, what you gain today when you do that is not just knowing about this kind of God, but it's belonging to this God who keeps his promises at every turn. And so if you're not a Christian, I just want you to know that there is a place and a people, a real place and a real people that you can belong to. And so turn from your sin and trust in Jesus alone. And that's the overview of the book of Genesis. 38 chapters focusing on the lineage of a specific people with specific promises and specific events, and we open Exodus, and what do we find? This people is front and center. And so Exodus, really, it's, it's a book that puts a man at the center of the book, Moses, but he's not the hero. It puts a nation at the center of the book, but the nation is not to be most celebrated. Ultimately, Exodus will put God at the center and the book of Exodus will chronicle his covenant-keeping faithfulness and his love to a covenant-breaking people. And the reason that he's committed to this is because he has a driving passion to see the earth filled with his glory. And that will happen through a people who worship him. How in the world would you encourage two million refugees to not lose heart as they wander 
waiting. Moses writes a book to help them remember. Remember. The act of remembering strengthens the faith of God's people. It nurtures the faith of God's people. We don't lose heart. We don't lose trust. And if you're a Christian this morning, God has given us an act, an act to help us remember, to have our faith strengthened, So we don't lose heart and we don't lose hope. And as we look back and remember, we then look forward and have confidence. Not because the days are easy. Not because of the goodness and the gifts that you and I have. But because of the faithfulness of this God. The church stands to forever find enjoyment in God's provision for their sin. And one of the ways they do that is through the Lord's Supper. And those two verbs... Those two verbs that marked the the introduction of destruction, take and eat, will become the same two words that Christ would speak to his followers in telling them about accepting his sacrifice. And so that invitation is open for us. Take and eat. For this was the body that was broken for us, that we might have forgiveness of sins. The table here at Covenant Life is open to Christians, those who've turned from their sin and trusted in Jesus alone. But Christians who have been baptized as an expression of obedience and identification with Christ. The Lord's Supper is not the the initial identification with Christ. That's baptism. The ongoing identification is the Lord's Supper. And so it's to Christians who are baptized, who are members of, of good standing in a local church that preaches the gospel that you heard here about how we can be made right with God. It's not just about self-proclaiming whether or not we're Christian. It's about God's people affirming our proclamation. And so it's for Christians who are baptized, who are members in local churches that preach that same gospel, that are walking in reconciliation with one another. We don't come and act like we're good with God and being at odds with man. No, actually, God has strong words about that. He says, first, go and be reconciled and then come and worship me. And so we walk in reconciliation and we walk in repentance. We don't keep holding our sin coming to the table. Doesn't mean you're perfect when you come to the table. It does mean that you're saying, I, I want Christ more than I want my sin. And so if that's you, the table is open. And if it's not you, we would encourage you to just consider why you're choosing sin and not laying hold to what you gain in Christ. And so I'll, I'll pray. The music will begin to play. I would invite you to come forward, take your elements, and then go take your seat, and we will observe the supper together. Let's pray.